Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us today. I am Lieutenant Colonel Sam Padman, and I work at the Centre for Australian Army Leadership. On this episode of the Australian Army Leadership Program podcast series, we are talking about the application of innovation, risk tolerance, opportunism, and leading through and beyond failure within the Australian Army. Today, we are very privileged to be joined by Brigadier Ian Langford, uh, currently the Director General Future Land Warfare, who has kindly agreed to share his views on our topic today. Welcome, sir. Hey, thanks very much. It's great to be here uh, and really uh, a wonderful opportunity to talk with you today on what is such an important component of the Army uh, as we provide both uh, land capability to uh, the Joint Force but also really provide a signal function for the whole of society that which we represent. So it's really great to be here. Excellent. Thank you very much, sir. And again, thank you for your time. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, by way of introduction to the topic itself before I hand back to, to Brigadier Langford to discuss it further. Uh, in a dynamic and unpredictable world, which we refer to as an environment of accelerated warfare, leaders must be prepared to embrace opportunity and act fast. This can be achieved by establishing a vision, but accepting that detailed planning is not always possible. The vision allows the team to think big and then take the smallest executable step by starting small and moving fast. The team can then assess the initial outcome, adjust effort where required, and then take the next executable step with minimal delay. Now, they may encounter some risks and some setbacks to work through, but arguably, if the leader establishes the right environment, encourages creativity, manages the risks as they arise, and then maintains a bias for action, then success may be realised sooner. Leaders must empower their people to learn through boldness, innovation, and the inevitable failures and setbacks required to achieve ultimate success. The commitment of resources and reputation can be progressive. Risks can be consciously embraced and mitigated. This approach then allows people to seize the opportunity as they arise and act in uncertain environments, knowing that they are empowered by leaders who have set the right environment and who are willing to lead them through and beyond failure. Uh, now, before I invite Brigadier Langford to, uh, to talk uh, and speak on his views of this topic, I'd like to take an opportunity to introduce him uh, further so that you understand a bit more of his uh, background. So Brigadier Ian Langford has previously served as the Commanding Officer, a Second Commando Regiment, and he has also commanded multiple Special Operation uh, Task Groups. Recently, Brigadier Langford led the Chief of Army's Initiative Group, and in December 2018, assumed the role of Director General of Future Land Warfare. Uh, with brief tenures as both the head land capability as well. Bria Langford is a distinguished graduate of the United States Marine Corps uh, Command and Staff College and the School of Advanced Warfighting. He holds a bachelor's degree in management, a master's of arts, a master's of defence studies and one of strategic studies. Again, sir, thank you and welcome to the podcast. No problems. Thanks uh, Thanks for such a uh, detailed introduction. And again, <laughs> it's my, uh, my privilege to be able to speak to you all today. You know, leadership is um, one of the most elemental functions of the Army. Um, one of the most important aspects of what we do is uh, thinking about what is it in the Australian Army that makes us peculiar to yeah. other armies? What is the Australian way of war? Yeah. And uh, what are those elements that we seek to protect but also effectively use to be able to both distinguish uh, ourselves from others yeah. Um, but also to uphold the values uh, of our culture and how best to represent our society. 
So one of the things I'd offer early is a consideration uh, amongst your listeners of what is it that right. makes us different. Okay. Uh, not better, but different. And one of the things that I think uh, the Australian Army is unique and must be better understood in thinking about how we lead it is this notion of the all-volunteer force. Service is something that we who wear uniform provide as a function of necessity. Um, without being too melodramatic, soldiering is the only professional vocation where yep. you surrender your right to life and you offer that to the state. So if I can there, sir, you're talking to the unlimited liability contract exactly. in essence. Yep. Police, for example, they are committed to public safety yep. um, and uh, they are brave and virtuous in that context. Uh, and again, it's not a question of better, but it is different. They don't necessarily have to offer their life in the context yep. of that notion of unlimited liability. So in that respect, um, what it is about the all-volunteer force in the Australian experience that makes mm. it special. Uh, and what I would offer is um, in thinking about our history, in understanding the nature of our society, knowing our workforce and where they come from yeah. and their family history and their own personal worldviews, schema and experiences is critical to distinguishing them as individuals before we combine them into groups right. and then employ them in the ways that you and I understand them being sections, squadrons, battalions or what have you. So yep. there really is a, an obligation on the part of all our leaders. And another thing that makes our army quite distinct is whilst leadership is uh, often uh, an authority or a delegation, yep. um, leadership is also what I describe as agency. It's not beholden to certain ranks or positions it's okay. required, indeed obligated, of all of us, whether you are a recruit who has uh, just joined the Army mm -hmm. uh, or you are the Chief of Army, there is a leadership component either through personal example and value setting yep. uh, as well as through the discharge of your duties as required by the description of your appointment. So if yep. you're a commanding officer, you know, you're obliged to set missions, um, to measure success, to enforce and uphold standards mm -hmm. and to really secure outcomes on behalf of your brigade or your command, like the army, the defence force, ultimately the government. So, yeah. you know, that, the two notions of an all-volunteer force uh, and uh, leadership as agency I yeah. think are critical to understanding what is peculiar about the Australian Army, uh, the society we, we represent, yeah. and how we choose to distinguish ourselves from other, not to be better, though in often case we are and we have to be, yes. but to be um, to be able to, to, to effectively um, see the nature of what we do and how we perhaps do it. Yeah. So you've raised some fantastic points there, you know, really understanding the individuals that make up the army itself, where they've come from, you know, and, and I suppose a point to ponder there, do we often spend enough time really understanding those who work for us and with us? Uh, the skill sets they bring to the party itself. And then, as you mentioned, we are a volunteer force, you know, and that brings the notion that the individual join the organisation. The organisation still has a requirement, as you said, there's a leadership agency to develop the individual and then build those robust and agile teams around that. 100%. I mean, there, there is a commonality in all good leaders. Um, and one of those commonalities is that good leaders take the time to understand their workforce. Yeah. They don't 
assume their workforce as a commodity to mm-hmm. be consumed and potentially discarded uh, at an appropriate time. They take time to develop their own insight, mm-hmm. uh, their own empathy, um, but also their own fortitude in being able to work with other people uh, and to be able to, t- to build collective goals through collective experiences, which mm-hmm. is that notion of training, yep. um, but then also um, to, when necessary, apply the mission as the overwhelming determinant, which sometimes can be at odd with the yeah. group yeah, of course. outcome. And, and, that, and that's the difference. So there is, there is a commonality of all good leaders in understanding the people they work with, mm. in allowing individuals to surge to their strengths, yes. but also doing that in the context of collective outcomes, be they missions or expectations or behaviours or what have you. And, and, and that's probably one of the first principles, particularly at the junior NCO and at the junior officer yeah. level uh, of our experience where that matters oftentimes more than in other parts of the organisation. Yeah, of course. So that's uh, a great point you've raised there. You know, understand that the mission might be at odds with the, the wants of the group itself. Thanks back to your point of it's a volunteer force. You need to be prepared for that unlimited liability contract. If I can, so you've raised uh, some great points about leader behaviours and what a leader should do. What are your views on the follower? So obviously there's two parts to the, to the team here. Yep. Uh, what, what key behaviours could they do? To, so we're so. all leaders and we're all followers. Mm. Uh, we all work for somebody and that's a good thing. Um, again, it is uh, often um, insight and the ability to reflect on your role and how mm-hmm. best to um, exercise that role in achieving the mission um, that guarantees uh, a, a p- positive contribution in terms of behaviours, whether as a leader or a follower. You know, there is a professional courtesy and indeed often a personal obligation to let those who are in command by yeah. appointment fully exercise their authorities. Yeah. Um, leadership isn't like a ship, to yeah, use that correct. sort of throwaway term, and it's true. Um, you don't necessarily have to uh, agree with every decision, Yes. Um, but in the context of how we apply military discipline to exercise military power, mm. there is a place when you should contest the conversation up to the moment of decision yes. and then you execute. Fantastic. And, and again, whether you're a leader or a follower in that contest of wills, knowing your place is a really important component of allowing the task to be achieved successfully. Um, if, if I can talk to your, your last point there, so, you know, um, having your say up to the point of the leader making a decision. One of the key focal areas that we're looking at with the leadership program is a, a term which is critical thinking and contributory dissent. Now, critical thinking, so having a look at what's being proposed by the leader or the plan or the mission set using uh, your own nous and intelligence, skill sets, etc., to critically think about and analyse what's being proposed strategize how you might inject your thoughts, your opinions, so that contributory dissent stuff, that way not everyone is saying, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, that's the right way. Uh, Hopefully we're building a more robust plan. But importantly, once the decision's made, then it's heels together on with the mission. Yeah, look, I think, I mean, again, I I don't don't contest the logic. I think dissent's got a bit of a hard edge to it. It does. Um, I I would look back... Uh, across our professional military education program. And, and for many, you don't get exposed at this until you sort of 
you move to the middle management level of the organisation. So you get a mm-hmm. staff college, or you you do your your, your subject courses for uh, senior and senior moral. So, but the notion of discourse and mm. dialectic now it comes from sort of Clausewitz and yeah. this notion of uh, discourse, which is this Socratic positive discussion that focuses on enriching the collective experience in order to improve decision making. So yeah. discourse and dialectic. Um, it's interesting, um, you know, that the notion of the book on war is this Western statement of land warfare that a Prussian articulated in the context of trying to understand the Napoleonic victories of the, you know, the early 1800s. Yeah. Um, I look at it uh, and I use a term in that book specifically. It's called positive reenactment. Mm. And in that context, I see that book as effectively a training manual. Right. There are parts of that book that really emphasise the notion of discourse and dialectic, and that yes. is to have a contextual debate where you rely on experts and advice, regardless of position, in order to improve the plan. And then um, in so doing that, uh, you aim to use military science and operational art to increase your chances of military success. Um, that's effectively the JMAP. Yeah. So, yep. you know, the, the notion of discourse happens in mission analysis. Of course. Uh, it happens in uh, the two courses of action, you know, development and analysis. Yes, sir. Um, and then you get to that decision where you then turn that analysis and that thinking into orders by which then you execute. Mm-hmm. Now, at time past a point, and I'm not an absolutist in this sense, you, you know, the plan still enhances. post hour, um, fog and friction become yep. factors. Thinking becomes organic because it's based on stimuli that's happening in the lived experience of those who are executing the task. Mm -hmm. And that's why in the Australian experience, mission command becomes really critical. Of course, Because, you know, it's it's often the case that, you know, um, uh, absolute direction will get you to a point, but Mm -hmm. it won't get you the whole way. You've got to allow on the initiative and the instinct and the alarm of, you know, our, our people and understanding our people is, is obviously critical yeah. to close out the issues of fog and friction and to achieve a mission. And so mission command becomes really important, you know, yeah. understanding what, why and how um, and the constituent elements of a task and then thatching them all together mm-hmm. into a course of action is critical. And so, you know, dissent is, it has a hard edge. I know what it seeks to describe. Um, the discourse notion of continual improvement is yeah. absolutely correct and we need to encourage that. Yeah, great, sir. That's some fantastic points. If I can draw further on your um, post-HR discussions there. So you've mentioned, you know, as we lead up to, you know, um, being innovative in our approach towards planning there, going through the wargaming piece. HR then occurs and we're off into the mission. In an accelerated warfare environment where it's a contested operating environment, uh, the fog and the friction will come straight into it. How do leaders establish the right environment? How do they develop their teams so they can embrace opportunities post-HR? If they fail, they learn fast and then they reorientate quickly back onto the mission. Yeah, I mean, really important. Um, You know, we uh, have to rely on the talent of our people uh, often as our success metric. You know, we... um, we are a, a increasingly uh, technically focused capability mm-hmm. uh, and that reflects the changing character of conflict. Um, yeah. uh, we know war's nature is a, a battle of wills and, you know, for the purposes of imposing one will over the other uh, and if and when necessary, um, 
you know, the threat or actual use of political violence is, yeah. is a component of that. Uh, whereas War's character is constantly changing, and that's what Accelerated Warfare sought to describe, which was changes are constant, but mm-hmm. what is happening right now is much uh, quicker. Yeah. Um, and it is on us to effectively outpace that if we want to win. Roger. And so it's okay to anticipate, embrace technology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay to be steeped in international relations. It's really important to have an understanding of military history. And I say yeah. these things not because technology or history or international relations theory is a theology. Mm-hmm. It's not an absolute. Yeah. But it becomes an analogy and a context for how we apply different frames yeah. in order to appreciate the situation, to inform decision-making, to allow us to adjust our position yeah. and to be all informed. Um, most of what the Army does is outside the sphere of traditional armed conflict, yeah. albeit we must preserve our role in that as the single determinant because that's the charge of the military. Yeah. But yeah. it's not an either-or proposition. The Army also needs to understand the society and the system that it exists in. Yes. The Army needs to be able to talk to civil society and be able to react and understand the role of politics in society mm-hmm. without being political, of course. Yeah. Um, but being able to best respond to our society's needs, both in the traditional sense and in the non-traditional sense, and, you know, the bushfires of this past six months yeah. and the ADF support to um, the government's management of the coronavirus yes. are all symptoms of an urgency of response, often unorthodox and absolutely non-traditional, yeah. uh, that will be the experience of people in the army as we move into the middle part of this century and beyond. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, we need the preserve of close combat. Yeah. And we need to focus on that. That's what armies do. Yes. And war is uh, an elemental part of human nature. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's right. Uh, therefore, tragically, it will always be with us. Yeah. But it yeah. doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation to expand our notion of responsibility, mm-hmm. our contract with our citizenry, yes. and recognise in so doing we've got to expand ourselves yeah. and look beyond the notion of traditional battle mm-hmm. uh, and be able to anticipate um, some of the unique and emerging challenges of this century. Yeah, great. Yeah. And if I can, sir, um, what if we don't? So a, a question and potentially put you on the spot here. Yeah. Uh, and I know Army is a very good learning organisation. Uh, you open there with we need to take the opportunity to really exploit um, emerging technologies, yep. you know, develop ourselves as individuals and as a team. Um, from your viewpoint, what if the Army or, or an Army in general doesn't do that? You'll disconnect and you become okay. a military caste. You'll become... Um, um, separate to society. Mm -hmm. And so you'll end up with a military caste of uh, professionals who see the army as a logic and not a method to protect a society. The army will become a logic all of itself, will become the sort of modern version of what the, you know, Germanic state of Prussia was in sort of the period of Frederick the Great. Um, You know, you've seen throughout the 20th century the risks that happen in nation states when the military becomes detached mm. from society. 
Now, there are differences in expectations and obligations, and part of that is the wearing of the uniform. Yeah. You know, yeah. We have a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to the use of illegal narcotics, mm-hmm. and there are various expectations and standards across the society that we represent in yeah. regards to that particular issue. Now, I'm not saying that we're right and they're wrong. What I'm saying is that we have a standard in the context of our role mm-hmm. as a guarantor in the provision of military support. Yeah. And in yeah. that respect, you can't mix that sort of behaviour with the absolute certainty that comes with applying lethal force. Of course. But that doesn't mean we don't represent those that have a different view, and yeah. that's the nature of democracy, of course. Yeah, of course. So if we don't represent... Uh, the better angels of our democracy, if we don't represent our society Mm -hmm. as an instrument of national power, if we become disconnected and therefore a military caste separate to our community, then, um, you know, we we are at a critical risk of an ethical failure, a military failure, Mm -hmm. or indeed a social failure when it comes to meeting the expectations uh, of, of, of the ADF. Yeah, yeah. And, and a massive risk there, you know, becoming mm. disconnected from society, you know, then puts yeah. us out in our, our lonesome there. So if I can, whilst I've got the time with you uh, today, talk to risk tolerance within the, the ADF, uh, correction, within the Army itself. So we've spoken to take an opportunity, which is great, you know, learning from our mistakes and leading through those. Uh, risk tolerance. Some of our listeners may contend that the Army might be a bit risk adverse. Um, how do we engender in our leaders to establish an environment where the risks are identified, uh, the risks are then um, managed or or they're taken as calculated risks to really deliver good training here in Australia to then best enable us in accelerated warfare environment uh, whilst deployed in operations. Yeah, well, uh, the first thing I'd encourage people to do is to think about the science of risk management. So Mm -hmm. think about the notion of, um, you know, probability and consequence. Um, Risk management isn't merely the process of doing a risk reduction in the way that we understand it to be the case in our training systems. Mm-hmm. Um, the military appreciation process is a risk management process. Yeah. You uh, acquit yourself across course of action analysis and through the war game, um, effectively a rubric that seeks to mitigate or minimise risk mm-hmm. to select the course of action that has the most likely chances of success. Yes. That's a process of risk management. Mm -hmm. And so in that respect, um, we're very good at managing risk. Um, The one way to manage risk is to eliminate it. Yeah. And if you do that, uh, you're making one of two decisions. You've decided that you have reached a point in your abilities uh, that you can no longer manage over and above. And that's not a criticism. That's an observation. Yeah. You, in business, they call it the Peter Principle. You get promoted to one level above your level of competence. Yeah. Because if you're that. competent, you keep going. Yeah, now, again, I don't know the science of that, and it sounds a bit, you know, flimsy, but I'll roll with it. Yeah. Um, if you choose to manage risk by eliminating it, the, 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 the fork in the road is you've either decided unconsciously or consciously that this is mm. beyond your capacity to manage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or you're going to elevate it. Yeah. You know, so if you shut it down, the activity won't happen. Uh, and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, in respect to where you satisfy yourself, but that might not be the right option, might not be the correct option. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can't manage it, then you would elevate it. The other option, of course, is that you mitigate it through 
your practices, your processes and your procedures yes. to yeah. make sure that it is appropriate in its recognition, articulation and its mitigation and then mm. you get on with it. So yeah. we manage risk all the time, yeah. whether it be financial risk, uh, whether it be workplace health and safety in the context of our barracks or whether it's operational risk in terms of uh, risk to force and yeah. risk to mission itself. Um, risk management is what Army's leaders do. Yeah. Uh, it's not business speak. It is a function of our roles and responsibilities, particularly for those in command appointments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the expectation is that you'll deliver on that. So yeah. Um, yeah. it's not about being reckless. It's about, again, through your own professional development, um, your own understanding of risk management, being mm-hmm. able to apply all those knowledge, skills and attributes to reduce risk to a point that is acceptable yeah. and then exercising um, your risk controls as you execute the mission and then measure to, measuring, monitoring and um, you know debriefing yourself on that activity in the context of risk to better inform the next process. It's that learning loop that is very short um, but is organic um, to effectively mitigate and eliminate risk over time. Whether you are doing a counterterrorism uh, assault across the maritime domain using helicopters and ships, yeah. or whether you're exercising um, LF3 you know, in a wets range, there is an element of risk to all that. If you have the skills and the training and the preparation, um, they are both activities that can be managed to a risk um, that could be classed as low. Um, in the context of those controls. Yeah, so, correct. you know, it's 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 part of what we do. It's mm-hmm. nothing to be afraid of. Um, you are in a team that want you to be successful yeah. and you just need to be alive to it. Great. Yeah. No, thank you, sir. Uh, and while I have the time with you this afternoon, if I can, as one final question or point, we've spoken a lot today about the individual, you know, the leader and the follower, then building the individual into teams and then teams of teams. As an organisation, as the Australian Army, um, do you think we're taking the right steps towards, you know, really embracing opportunity, being innovative, um, and then setting ourselves up for an accelerated warfare environment? Absolutely. I mean, I, I would say, and I, I, you know, I'm slightly biased, but mm. um, I say this with high confidence that our leadership have given us the opportunity to reimagine ourselves. Yep. Uh, and in so doing, I have uh, people in my organisation here, and I have a network across Army. Um, that are involved in uh, understanding emerging technologies, so artificial intelligence, quantum, high-performance computing, robotics and autonomous systems, uh, where five years ago that wouldn't have happened. Great. And we are resourcing those endeavours. I've got concept development now that move the tactical bubble beyond what we know as the traditional deep battle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you use deep, close and rear as a way to understand your geometry, yep. typically for armies, that extends out to 100 kilometres, give or take. Yep. That is yep. now changing. We are uh, understanding the opportunities that come with emerging technology. Mm-hmm. And when you think about other domains to include space and cyber, we're seeing a possibility and an alternate fast emerging reality that puts army at the strategic core of operational yes. art, which yep. is theatre level uh, and in some respects globally sort of uh, focused when it contrasts to the threat. So if you think about, you know, the notion of terrorism or if you think about, um, you know, the the issues of pandemics and others that really have a a, a whole of system effect, the Mm -hmm. army is allowed to think about these problems and not just TAOR blue and reconnaissance patrols and fighting patrols. And they are also really important, you know, so it's not either or, it's both. Uh, and for the Army, um, 
we are masters of our destiny in that respect. Mm -hmm. We own the keys to our future in the way that we reimagine ourselves mm -hmm. and then through effective leadership, how yeah. we execute our duties and discharge our obligations to our communities in realising that future force. Yeah. And it's a, it's a really exciting time in terms of both our new equipment but also our new opportunities mm -hmm. in relation to what we do in the region, how we contribute to a rules-based system globally and in terms of how we serve our communities. Yeah. Um, the yeah. other piece I'd, I'd also uh, emphasise is the knowledge and the introspection that comes with the kind of uh, personal, professional insights from our people is changing the way that we think about ourselves. Yeah. You know, the application of... Um, you know, a morals-based approach to leadership. Mm -hmm. used to be the domain of chaplains and yeah, really no be. one else. Mm. I don't think it uh, it was ever not the case that we all thought about the difference between right and wrong, mm. but now that's foremost of our thinking. Yes. You know, morals are right and wrong. The more challenging aspect of ethics, which is often the mm. difference between more right and less right, which makes it really hard, is a, is a live conversation. Yeah. And in PME, yeah. whether it be at staff college, high defence college or mm. recruit training, Understanding yourself, understanding your own decision-making, understanding your own biases to make you a better person and yeah. make you a better soldier is intrinsic to realising accelerated warfare to make us a better organisation that's more responsive to the future. Great. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Some fantastic insights uh, there to, to close with on that point, uh, how we as an organisation are really getting after this. And it's great to hear from one of our senior leaders that, that we are and from your point of view. So, um, again, thank you very much for your time today to uh, work with us on this podcast on innovation, risk tolerance, opportunism, and leading through and beyond failure. I in particular, you've raised some, some very good points about you know, understanding the individual, how do we build the individual and then build them into a team, you know, the interplay between the leader and the follower, you know, what happens when the decision's made, you know, what does post-HR look like, how do we then you know, control risk, whilst conducting a mission you know, and then reorientate as we need to. Uh, and really, I find a point that resonated with me today was your views and where we're going as an organisation, that we are in a good position, where we're taking maximum use of those opportunities afforded to us to, to really get the form of correction, get the organisation going in the way that the Chief wants us to go and then senior leaders want us to go. Um, that's all we have time for today, sir. Thank you again for your time. Uh, to our listeners, I uh, look forward to you joining us on our next uh, podcast. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks very much. And to all your listeners, I wish you all the best. Please reach out if you want to talk about accelerated warfare and let's together reimagine the army and make uh, all of us better in the future. Thanks very Thanks. much. Thanks, sir. Uh